Rock and roll. It's your daily dose of all things Gamecocks on the Inside the Gamecocks podcast. Here's J.C. Sherbert. Welcome in. It's game week, folks. Inside the Gamecock podcast, J.C. Sherbert here with you. Monday, September 21st, the year 2000, which will be a year that lives in infamy, I believe, <laughs> in case you've been living under a rock. But anyway, no, no sense in starting it out with that. Uh, it's Monday, so everybody either needs to be happy or ticked off. Um, and I'm sure that uh, most of you are right there kind of wavering between the two emotions, as we always are on Mondays. When we start off game week, and uh, it's going to be hard to concentrate at work this week, most likely. Uh, you're going to be consuming a bunch of content here and elsewhere. Uh, and then right on up until kickoff, 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, SEC Network, Tennessee Volunteers, invading williams Bryce Stadium. Um, Gamecocks have been pretty successful in this series, I would say, uh, the last 10 years or so, uh, with some losses that really kind of – stick in your crawl a little bit. And, and I'm sure Tennessee feels the same way. There have been a lot of really tough losses on their end, too, to the Gamecocks. It's just been that kind of series. If you think back to, like, 2008, Gamecocks won 27-6. Uh, Kiffin comes the next year. They win a, a quagmire up there at, at Neyland, 31-13. <laughs> and then the Gamecocks start running off wins, 38-24, to 14-3, and then 38-35. To 2012, and then the 2013 loss, which we've discussed here, uh, was one of the toughest ones in Carolina history. You know, I'm not going to go back and talk about that game and beat up Steve Spurrier and that one, but I think we can all agree that year with the timing that it happened and consider Tennessee wasn't that good, was it was a tough one. Uh, 14 was in terms of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, one of the more brutal in Carolina history, uh, you know, I, Tennessee came back from 42-28 down. I think there were two minutes left. Tied it, sent it to overtime and won. Spurrier couldn't even complete his post-game press conference. That was the that was the third leg of the three games they just blew that year. Uh, and the only time Tennessee has won at Williams-Brice since 2006. Um. You know, moving forward, uh, 2015, you know, Carolina got behind 17 nothing early. Looked like the Vols were going to roll. And uh, Sean Elliott, who, by the way, coached a pretty good game this weekend. They lost to Louisiana in overtime at Georgia State. But, boy, they, they played those guys a lot better than Iowa State did. You know, not that you should ever compare scores or anything like that. Every week's different. But uh, was impressed with Georgia State. Hats off to Sean Elliott. think they're going to have another good year this year. Um you know, against Louisiana. But, you know, in in true fashion for that team, after Spurrier left, you know, they didn't give up. They fought back, came back. Uh, it was 27-24. Orth completes a pass to Jarrell Adams, who fumbled. Uh, otherwise, I have a feeling they would have at least tied it and gone to overtime, and Adams may have kept going into the end zone. Um, so that was 2015, and that was kind of the Vols' last three-game run. And then Muschamp comes in. He comes in 4-0 against the Vols. Uh, Jake Bentley leads the Gamecocks to a big upset that first year. And I, I know that Tennessee team ended up not being that good. You know, that team that year, 2016, Tennessee should have won the East. Um, they had that big win at Georgia, improbable as it was late. 
Uh, Butch Jones did that a couple of times too, by the way. If he if you watched him at Cincinnati, they had some games like they played Virginia Tech one year. I think it was in where the Redskins play up in Maryland, FedEx Field, and they won a game on the last play. I mean, they they were actually not bad at pulling it out of their behunkuses. Uh, that was one trademark of Butch Jones' career. He, he was pretty good at unexpectedly beating you late. Um, but, uh, you know, that was still a pretty that, – that team, you know, when you matched it up, had a lot of big, big-time players, Derek Barnett being one of them. Carolina just played really well. J- Jamarcus King had his best game, was a real difference maker in that one. Um, and the Gamecocks won. You know, the next year up in Knoxville – uh, against a Tennessee team that did not ultimately win an SEC game. The Gamecocks pulled one out of their behunkuses. Um, they Tennessee sitting on the two-yard line late, first and goal, and Carolina stopped them and won 15-9. And then in, in another weird game in 2018, you know, Tennessee's rolling right along 21-9. Uh, Gamecocks offense was really explosive that night in terms of big plays. I think Rico Dowdle averaged 10 yards a carry. Uh, Carolina came back and won 27-24. Uh, Jake Bentley played really good, you know, bringing the team back. Actually played good all night. And then Dowdle was the big story there, 14 carries for 140 yards against the Vols. And then flash forward to last year, we've talked about it to death. Um, you know, th- that was a game where first half I felt like, you know, South Carolina things had gone wrong, you know, because that was not a Vols team coming into the game. Now, afterward – they turned it around, and they deserve all the credit in the world for doing that. You know, Jeremy Pruitt turned that. I mean, when you lose to Georgia State and BYU, and then in your SEC games you have trouble crossing the 50 sometimes, um, you know, you, you sort of, uh, you know, you're kind of behind the eight ball, you know. And, and, and when you're a second-year coach and you still got a lot of the old coaches' players, you know, the buy-in at that point becomes challenging. And uh, I thought Tennessee was heading – for another disastrous year. I didn't think Pruitt would get fired. But lo and behold, you know, they ended up winning six straight games and finishing eight and five and winning the Gator Bowl. So that's a pretty good doggone good year considering how things started for Tennessee. But at that point, you know, I'm sitting there and it's 21-17 Gamecocks. And I was like, well, the offense has gotten enough to where some of the mistakes on defense and special teams have not hurt the Gamecocks that much. And then second half, the offense just went, you know, the balloon – the air went out of the balloon, so to speak. Tennessee shut Carolina out. 41-21 was the final. You know, two special teams touchdowns. Uh, you know, so it was really 27-21. Still don't think Carolina played well on defense that day. Um, I think that game and the North Carolina game were two defensively. You can really circle and say, you know, a better performance on that side of the ball probably helps the Gamecocks. You know, do they win? I think North Carolina, they obviously do because of the fourth quarter. That's when the problems happen. But up in Knoxville, when they've had a puncher's chance late, you know, had the offense gotten something together and made a late drive, yeah, probably so. So that's, you know, it's hard to fault the defense for last year uh, overall from a macro perspective. But when you look at certain games, you know, and, and when I say I think the defense has to be more consistently good this year, that that's kind of what I'm talking about. They have to avoid those types of games because – I don't know that right now, and 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 I I do think the offense is going to be better than people think, but I don't know that right now you can realistically, without a couple of games to analyze, say, okay, well, you know, if Carolina has to outscore this team this year, 
that's okay. They're capable of doing it. I, I you know, I, I don't know that they're not, but I wouldn't bank on it. <laughs> and I, and I think that's fair because, you know, there's a lot more talent and I'm not going to say talent, raw talent. When you say talent, uh, talent usually means baseline. You know, what, what could this, these players on this team ultimately be in time in terms of talent? And then when I think talent, that's what I think. Uh, let's say proven players, let's say there are more proven players with experience um, that should be really good on the defensive side of the ball than there are on offense. Cause on offense, they're just, you know, there's some guys that, you know, like I'll, I'll use Xavier Leggett as an example. You know, here's a guy that's six foot, he's 215 pounds, 210 pounds, runs four, four, <laughs> you know, that's how you draw him up. Well, you know, he caught what seven, eight passes last year and dropped a few and didn't really look like he knew what he was doing. You know, so his development's obviously going to be key in terms of the offense. You know, you look at the running back position. You know, Zaquandre White's a guy that they want to get healthy and see if he can go start. Um, you know, Deshaun Fenwick has had a very good offseason, the best he's had since he's been at Carolina. Um, but, you know, he has two games under his belt against Vandy and Chattanooga where he did really – he was very productive. But, you know, that, that's not against Tennessee. You know, that's – and Vandy, Vandy actually did have a pretty good defense at times last year. But, uh, you know, you, you sort of think the level of competition, you know, go prove it against somebody else. You know, Kevin Harris is a guy that, you know, obviously was really good against Charleston Southern. But as I've said, you can't really take that as much of anything because Charleston Southern was struggling so bad. Um, and he's a guy that's unproven. Uh, Rashad Amos is unproven. You know, so, you know, that's why I think defensively this year, Carolina's got to, they got to step up, you know, and and take a step. Now, and that's not, again, not blaming that side of the ball for last year at all. Uh, And I did think they showed some improvement. But that that unit's got to carry the Gamecocks a little bit, I think. Uh, And hopefully, hopefully that's not a valid take you know, in a couple of weeks and we're sitting there going, well, they're both pretty good on both sides. You know, the offense is, you know, able to make some explosive plays, go up and down the field, score points, that type of thing. And uh, we're not concerned, but heading in, you know, and you got to be intellectually honest about this, you know, you, you, you kind of hope the defense would carry Carolina. And I, you know, just spitballing here. I, I think, I think Saturday's probably going to be a defensive game. You're probably going to see 21, 14 ish, you know, 17-13-ish. I'm not going to make a score prediction. Um, but I think uh, – well, I'm not going to make a score prediction now. Let's just put it that way. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I think reading it kind of I'm, I'm like – because I've got – you know, I, I think Tennessee is going to be really good on the offensive line. I love Eric Gray as a running back. Loved him out of high school. Tim Jordan's a second back that's really good. Um they're kind of in the same spot at receiver as the Gamecocks are, you know, in terms of youth and experience, you know, how are they going to throw the ball? I do. I expect to see them, you know, try to utilize the screen pass a little bit against Carolina. Some of those dinks and dunks um, get guys out in space and make the Carolina secondary tackle, Um, you know, but I, I, I I do, I don't expect them to come into Williams Bryce and light it up. That all that said, You know, with the pandemic, the lack of consecutive tackling practices and things like that, you know, I've seen teams around the country that, you know, are struggling in the tackling department. Uh, I don't expect necessarily Carolina and Tennessee to be two of those, but 
you know, I haven't sat there and watched a weekend of SEC football yet either. And, and in the SEC, you just have such good talent on both sides of the ball. Um, and we really haven't seen a lot of games where teams are kind of evenly matched so far. I mean, you know, you, you sort of look at, I guess, Miami and Louisville Saturday night. And uh, I think, obviously, those two teams will be better offensively than defensively, particularly Louisville. You know, and it's 47-34, and guys, you know, teams are going up and down the field with relative ease. Miami got more stops. So, you know, there you go. There's the better D. I think Louisville's got to get better on that side of the ball just overall. Um, you know, I think they've, they've got something going on offense, but defensively the, the Cardinals are really struggling. Um, and I think to have a successful season that they think they will, because they won eight last year under Scott Satterfield, they're going to have to get better on the side of the ball. So, so what does that tell us? Does that tell us that we're going to wake up Saturday and pop on Auburn and Kentucky, which to me feels like a 17-7 game at half, a 24-10 type SEC slobber knocker. And, you know, each team is going to have 28 on the board at halftime. We're like, whoa. And does that mean Mississippi State's going into LSU and, you know, hanging 30 on them and, and LSU has to score 50? You know, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. You know. So my opinion on Saturday night's game may change during the day Saturday in terms of scoring, but I think we're heading towards a low-scoring ball game um, Saturday night, which is fine if you're the Gamecocks because I think, you know, I, I think then it comes down to kind of consistency and, and you know, your fourth quarter play, uh, game-winning drive play, which they've worked incessantly this, this preseason. And, you know, hopefully Will Muschamp can get back on the winning side of winning fourth quarter games because – Prior to the Florida game in 2018, he was pretty doggone good with the lead going into the fourth quarter. I think he's 13 and two at Carolina with the lead going into the full fourth quarter. So we'll see what happens with that and um, in in the game. And we're sure, certainly going to talk about it a lot all week this week. Uh, the matchups, all that, going to you know get some get some folks to talk to you, except for me, hopefully. Uh, and we'll have all that for you this week as game week is here. So there's some other subjects I want to get to today. First of all, Tion Evans, Tyon Evans, Tion Evans. Somebody told me how to pronounce it correctly. I think it's Tion. Uh, the really talented stud Juco running back out of Hartsville was committed to Tennessee up and decommits um, in a surprise over the weekend because, you know, they – Tennessee sort of uh, – <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know who else was really coming after him all that hard, to be honest. Um, you you know, you, you'd think South Carolina, which was in the mix, maybe be a, was a factor, but I, I checked with some sources Saturday night, and they haven't talked to the kid, and the kid hadn't talked to them. And then he had some very pointed comments about the South Carolina thing is dead. Um and really, when when you kind of look at it, when somebody kind of throws you under the bus when they commit like that, you know, in the strange case where you end up going and being a part of their program again, and that rarely happens, you know, there there needs to be some some apology and, and reconciliation and an attempt on the part of the prospect because you just don't, you know, you, there's a nice balance in chemistry at South Carolina right now with the players, you know. And I think Evans is a, is a stud, you know, if, if it were me, I would, I would do everything I could to get him in and get him ready to roll and all that. But he's a Juco player in a pandemic. He's going to be what, two years away from playing football by the time he comes in. 
uh, first and foremost. So that impacts the football side of things. I mean, you know, Caleb McDowell, who's who's not going to be used like an Evans would be, but he's a he's a running back technically, and, and he's playing, and he's shining and starring. They love him. Um, Ontario Brown, who uh, look for this uh, next week, the BigSpur.com will have some great information on him. Um, as God's, it's, he's playing, he's rocking and rolling. Um, you know, White's there, Lloyd's there. You know, do, do you throw a guy in that that's you know, going to be disgruntled if he's not getting carries, no matter how good he is. I mean, is that going to, is he the type of guy that's going to kind of upset the apple cart and, and you have to use the signs because you can't sit him down in person right now because of the stupid dead period, which by the way is an asinine decision. I mean, I, I'm sitting here talking to coaches from uh, other programs, Carolina, D2, wherever, you name it, high school. And they're like, we just, we don't understand why there's a dead period right now. You can go play a game with 20,000 fans, but you can't have four or five guys on campus visiting. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's crazy. And I, I'm not sure what the, what the rationale or thought process is, is there other than I know the NCAA hates everything about football recruiting. They hate the fact that it gets covered and gets attention and all that. You know, it goes against their, you know, uh, pseudo amateurist model, I guess. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I always thought that their hatred toward recruiting is, you know, they can't control the rights to it. I mean, you know, in, in the media and stuff, you know, the, the NCAA can't say, well, we got the exclusive on, you know, this guy's commitment um, with our broadcast partners and we can't charge our broadcast partners X dollars. I mean, we can't, you know, they, they make no money off of it. And I always thought that was kind of a, a secret reason why they don't like people that cover recruiting, but you guys know I've covered recruiting my whole career and they can um, go jump somewhere <laughs> for all I care. But it's just kind of funny that they keep putting, you know, canceling recruiting in. And really, I hate it for the other sports too. I mean, I, you know, your volleyball team has to go recruit, you know, the, the golf team has to go recruit. You know, I, I just, <laughs> I, I don't really understand it. Baseball's recruiting, basketball's recruiting. <clears throat> and um, coaches have found a way around it, but, you know, to me, it's it's highly unfair to the players that you're making them make a 40-year decision, you know, based on never visiting a place in person. And to me, that that's, that's you know, we always talk about how they care about the student-athlete and all that. Well, to me, that's not caring about the student-athlete at all. And then you say, well, you know, some, some conferences have canceled and all that. Well, hey, guess what? The MAC is coming back. You know, UMass announced today that they're going to play football in the fall. They're just lining up some opponents. So, I mean, UMass is one of the first schools to cancel because they're a, an independent, and they, you know, it's going to kind of cost them money. Well, now they're like, oh, well, wait a minute, we're playing. So everybody, everybody seems to be on the train toward playing. So, um, look, and I'm not saying you need to have a situation where, you know, you bring 50 guys into campus and cram them into the zone and no social distancing and, you know, crowding the sidelines and all that. I, I think you can – you could have visits while, you know, there's enough time between now and signing day. And they're probably going to need to push second signing day back anyway. I think if they don't do that, they're completely stupid. And I think most coaches would agree with me. Um, on the sideline, you know, you, you could you could have five, six guys distancing, stand them in the end zone or something, and then have social distancing when you, you know, serve your buffet or when you're doing the tour or whatever. Maybe don't tour the buildings on campus if you don't feel sanitary. You could do an outdoor deal. I mean, you know, there's just ways you can do it. I understand that 
there would be some liability if like a parent got COVID or something while they were on your campus. And, and there probably, you know, are some parents that have, you know, underlying conditions and stuff like that. And I do think you could, you could manage to do that safely. There, there's no way to eliminate that risk. I do think that you could, you know, maybe let the parents go virtual with their kids while they're there, get somebody to hold an iPad. I mean, you know, we do other things for recruiting that are really nice and accommodating, so why not that? But anyway, yeah, all the coaches I've talked to hate this crap with, with um, you know, no visits or whatever. It's totally baffling their mind. Um, and, and, and rightfully so, it baffles mind as well. So with Evans, you know, you got a kid that committed by sight unseen uh, and all that. If you're Carolina and you saw his comments and you see the fact, well, he's a junior college guy, it's going to take a lot for him to get back. You know, are, are you going to put in that kind of over-the-top effort when you've got Marshawn Lloyd sitting there, when you got White sitting there, when you got younger backs that are promising, and when you're going to go recruit some other guys too in the coming classes, and you and you like the guys you've got, McDowell and Brown. I mean, I, I just it, it, people will ask me, well, why in the heck did Carolina quit talking to him? Well, they quit talking to him because he said, well, they're never going to get me to the NFL. Um, you look at all the backs, and yeah, basically threw Bobby Bentley under the bus. Um, and said that, hey, the Tennessee coaches told me this, you know, over Zoom. So, you know, and my mom wants me to get out of South Carolina because there's trouble there, which is, an, you know, an old, tired explanation uh, that a lot of people have. And, 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 you know, who am I to talk for him? Maybe he does have reasons to get out of South Carolina. Maybe the coaching staff knows that. And they're like, well, we're not going to – we're just not going to mess with him. But I still think he's a hell of a bat. I just don't think, you know, and I was told in no uncertain terms Saturday night, South Carolina is not tracking him. They have not talked to him. They have moved on. Um, and they were just as surprised as Tennessee and everybody else. He just up and decommitted. But I think he's going to end up going someplace else. Uh, and I think if he truly does need to get away from South Carolina and he doesn't want to go to Tennessee, because I don't know that the Smoky Mountains necessarily form the nice natural barrier to trouble that people may think. Um, maybe he goes someplace halfway all the way across the country and, and does well, you know, and in that case, you know, you, you, you're happy for the young man that, you know, he went out there and used his God given talent to do something good. I mean, and look, and I'd be happy for him if he went to Tennessee, I don't want you guys to think that I'm not pulling for him to be successful. If he goes to Rocky top, I, I don't, I don't really roll that way about individual players. Um, but if he does need to get away and away from the Southeast and, you know, maybe looks out more toward where he's, you know, been at Hutchison, you know, that area of the country, then um, maybe he needs to do that. I mean, a, a big 12 offense would certainly fit his skill set. I could see him really doing some damage up there. And, you know, I could see him doing some damage at Carolina too. Don't get me wrong, but uh, this may be one of those situations too, where talent wise, you know, what we think about a kid and what the coaches think about a kid maybe in two different worlds. You know, I, I may think Evans is a stud and four-star guy and all that. Well, maybe they may not think that. And, and that's fine. You know, I'm not calling them, you know, when recruiting decisions like this. If you run your mouth like me, if you're like me and in my spot, uh, and you run your mouth about how good a player is and, and how a coaching staff should take him and all that, you can look foolish real quick if there's anyone out there keeping score because in my experience, the guys that in my gut I felt Carolina should take and then they didn't, um, that number probably went from like 20 to 30%, 40% 
uh, of guys that worked out during the later part of the Spurrier era because, you know, guys like Bryce Love and Naheem Hines, I thought, well, you know, they, they should go on those guys. But no, I didn't I didn't think they should be necessarily be running backs either. I thought, you know, when Spurrier's offense, you split those guys out. Um, probably was wrong about Love in that department. Hines probably could have done stuff like that. Um, you know, but those are like the only – I mean, there are other guys that I – swore to God they should have taken, and they didn't. And then those guys went other places and did absolutely zero. <laughs> so, um, you know, how much do I know? So I'm, I'm not going to sit here and run my mouth and be like, oh, well, you know, they should take it. Bah, 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 bah. Time will tell on all things, especially those guys that, you know, sort of fans and analysts are like, well, why don't you take this guy? You know, Jalen Hyatt coming into town for Tennessee this weekend. He's one. Um, now, I didn't necessarily think they should take Jalen Hyatt, but a lot of fans did and a lot of other analysts in my profession did. And I respect that. I mean, the guy could really fly. Uh, and we'll see kind of uh, see what he does this weekend for the Vols and moving forward. You know, even if he comes to Carolina and Saturday night, he doesn't have a catch or whatever. You know, there's nine more games and that kid's fast. They're going to find a way to get it to him. So we'll see there. All right. So Chuck Allen. And I don't know Chuck Allen. A lot of my media um, cohorts do, uh, peers in the media, I guess. Uh, I don't, we haven't dealt much with Chuck Allen um, at the Big Spur, to my knowledge. Uh, but uh, other people do. And he does an interview with uh, Josh Kendall. And uh, here's the long and short of it. Chuck Allen's a former Gamecock player. He's a member of the Board of Trustees. Uh, and they're basically wanting him to be off. And they're blaming an incident at the 2013 Clemson game in a luxury box where a Clemson fan, a lady, was yelling, screaming for the Tigers. My guess is it would be, oh, when they cut it to 24-17 late or they tied it at 17. That game was 31-17. I think Clemson actually tied it 17 apiece. Carolina went back on top. And then the infamous halfback pass play from – Farrow Cooper to Brandon Wilds put that puppy on ice. Um, and so I was I was there at that one. I was actually sitting in the zone, but uh, which is a great great vantage point, you know, to watch a game right there in the zone. First uh, first row. Uh, thanks to my friend Tony Pope for hooking me up with those seats back seven years ago. I appreciate that. Um, and, and so apparently this lady was yelling, you know, for the Tigers up in the box, and he was like turned around and was like, get out of our box if you're going to, you know, get off my lawn. <laughs> and look, I'll say this. People pay a lot of money. And he's a board of trustees member, so how did he get those tickets? I don't know. But people in general in those luxury boxes pay a lot of money uh, to sit up there. And I don't care if you are a Carolina fan at Clemson in a luxury box, which I have been. Or you're a you're you're a Clemson fan in a box at Carolina, uh, or you're an Auburn fan in a box at Alabama, or Georgia at Georgia Tech, which there's probably a lot of those. You know, you need to kind of be respectful. Now, I have no way of knowing if this lady was being disrespectful or just cheering or just excited, which you know that gets kind of tough. I mean, when there's an excitement of a rivalry game like that. And, when your team's lost four in a row, you, you certainly would like to see them come back and win. But um, although I do remember the Clemson crowd being pretty quiet that night, 2013 in Columbia, um, I, you know, so, so 
what was the exact situation? You know, how how mean was what he said? What was the tone? Was he yelling? Where was, you know, was her husband there and say something to him or was there an argument? Was there almost to the, I mean, I, you know, there's just a lot of details there that, that are kind of fuzzy. Um, so apparently they're using that as the board of trustees to kick him off the board of trustees. But the reality is, is that he didn't vote for President Caslin, which this President Caslin thing, man, look, I did not support him to be the guy. Because uh, I believe that that people that run academics need to need to need to run the academics, you know, be the president. I thought, you know, South Carolina had a good thing with Harris Pestides. They needed to go find somebody kind of like him. Um, universities are, are are not places that I think you can just run like the United States Military Academy. Um, I love the United States Military Academy. I love the United States military. Uh, I love the flag and patriot. I'm a patriot and. Uh, all that love this country. So, so let's get that first and foremost out of the way. And I admire the job that president Castlin, you know, did at army. Um, and I admire the job he's done at South Carolina. I mean, this, he's kind of the right guy at the right time. If you think about it, but at the time I can't sit here and lie to you and, and be a, a Kazan bandwagon bandwagon guy and say, I supported it. Cause I didn't, cause I just thought there were better candidates for, for the university of South Carolina. Um, you know, I, I thought that anything where we have the state government coming in and, and, and trying to micromanage at the university level is an inherently negative thing. Uh, and I say that by saying fix the damn roads. You know, I mean, the, the, our state government in, in South Carolina um, in, you know, I, I do live there part of the time, um, you know, pay my taxes there, all that good stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't sit there and say they've been the most competent bunch. How about that? (laughs) And and so when you're talking about the university of South Carolina, which is, you know, something that we all hold dear to our hearts and and we want it to run functionally and be the best school it possibly can be and have loads of success athletically and academically and, and all that. Um, because, you know, if you get a degree from there, you, you, you sort of, like the rep that comes with it. Now I'll say this, you know, I, I think that reputation of, of diploma is a little bit overrated. You know, people that get mad about letting athletes into school with 2.0 GPAs or whatever, or, you know, the asinine decisions of, of South Carolina's admissions department at times when it comes to athletics, you know, that use the whole, I want, I want my degree to be worth something, you know, that that's not going to make your degree worth any less friends. There are 30 something thousand students there. Nobody's going through everybody's resume, (laughs) you know, and most of those athletes that have bad grades that get in end up doing quite well, you know, see Sawyer, Dante and Ken Law, Javon, you know, neither one of those guys graduated from high school, (laughs) graduated with honors, both of them. Um, And, and, and those guys were both very smart guys. They just, you know, had life issues that caused them not to do well in high school, especially early on in high school. So give me a break with all that, but I've I've sidetracked again. So I'm so back to Caslin. I don't, I don't think the state government should be involved. I mean, it's a state supported institution. I think that if, if you had some sort of rogue BOT out there, you know, uh, some kind of, 
negative forces, some president like remember we remember James Holderman, you know, out going crazy. Heck yeah, the state government needs to step in because that's that's what they do. But you know, I I, I, I understand too that there are those that that felt strongly that Caslin was the guy, and and I get that. I just you know I just disagree. Um. And I don't think it should have ever become political uh, for or against Caslin. I don't think that situation should have ever become political. Well, Chuck Allen happened to be a guy that voted against Caslin. Um, and, you know, I, I never read his reasons, but he voted against Caslin and um, was told, well, there's going to be retribution. So here we are. It's 2020. There's all kinds of things that are wrong. <laughs> that need to be fixed in our world. Got an election coming up. Um, (laughs) That's not going to be fun. Um, And I usually, no matter who wins, enjoy election night. I don't think I'm going to this year. I may just go to bed. Um, You know, you got a pandemic going on. You're trying to have classes. You're trying to play football. Caslin's actually doing a pretty good, a really good job of that right now, you know, balancing everything and, getting guys tested and his plan was actually really good. I mean, there are other schools you look around you're like, what the hell? You know? <laughs> but uh, South Carolina has done really well with it. Um, why are we taking, you know, a big leap back two years ago, you know, to get rid of a guy who obviously loves South Carolina, uh, who played football for the Gamecocks, um, who yes, is outspoken at times. And, and yes, some of his comments in the media over the years, have just, you know, they've kind of gotten on my nerves a little bit because it's been, you know, oh, because I was a player, here, here's what I think, and this is what football should be, and, and you know, all that. And that wasn't necessarily what the word was internally or how I saw it or anybody else saw it. And, you know, I, I kind of felt like it may be best not to make those comments publicly because everybody knew he's the, you know, one of the former players on the BOT. Um, so he, people take his opinion more seriously than most. So I'm, I'm not saying the guy's been perfect, but it, it, why, why are we trying to relive all this? I mean, you know, vote for Caslin, don't vote for Caslin, whatever. That's over and done with. Um, I do think that, you know, that should never happen again uh, politically. You know, you should never force. Uh, I mean, a school president, and there goes Red, he's fired up about this subject as well. Uh, A school president should never be a political appointment. Um, So Henry McMaster should not have been picking the new president, whatever. And that's kind of how it seemed. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, So so I'm I'm saying I didn't agree, but but that's all in the past. You know, I'm judging, and you should judge, you know, President Caslin for the job President Caslin's doing right now, and he's doing a damn good job. You know, so why are we going back and reliving this and you know, kicking Chuck Allen off the board of trustees uh, and um, and trying to relitigate all this. I, I just don't understand. Um, and I'm sorry for the dog barking right there. Um, that was not cool. But um, so anyway, that's my take on that. I, I think it's I think it's just something that with, with everything else that's going on, it's a little tone deaf to try to deal with that. And, you know, in reading through his article and he did an interview with Josh Kendall, of the athletic to talk about it. He really didn't get into any specifics. Um, and then they asked him, of course, do you support Ray Tanner and Will Muschamp? And he said, yeah, I do. Um, he said he thinks Muschamp has to win. And I think everybody around the school agrees with that. I think everybody likes Muschamp that, that knows him and that, 
kind of looks beyond the wins and losses. And then the people that don't, you know, obviously don't like him. And that's fine too, because it's a bottom line deal. Uh, but, you know, I thought that was a little irrelevant. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any ties to any sort of athletics decisions. Um, they talk about the good old boys on the board of trustees. And I'll go and say this as well. Uh, keep in mind, the board of trustees is funded $50 million ops building, $22 million for the uh, renovations at williams Bryce. They built the largest indoor practice facility in the country. Uh, the area around williams Bryce Stadium from 2005 till today is unrecognizable because of the work that they, the investment that they put in. They built the Doty Anderson Academic Center. They built a new baseball stadium. Uh, the basketball arena, while you can question whether or not, and, and that was a little bit before the last 15-year period, Mike McGee got that done in open 2002. Um, that's relatively new. Um, you know, you've got 650 Lincoln where the athletics uh, guys are housed. You got an athletics village now. You got new track facilities. You got a new softball stadium. Uh, there's a list of things where South Carolina, and, and I think you definitely before around 05 could have made this argument that South Carolina's athletics operation was run on a shoestring budget. And, you know, they weren't really going to go pay what the others in the SEC would pay. And, and that trickled down for a while because I mean, they, they started building facilities. Highland kind of got that going, raise ticket prices, whatever. That trickled down to, like, football salaries for a while. So uh, I could do I, – I can tell you that, you know, there, there were coaches out there when Spurrier was there that were like, they're not going to pay the money. Now, that was a combination of Hyman. And then later in, year, in the years, uh, it's Spurrier, you know, as far as uh, – you know, Spurrier didn't want to go pay guys like that, but it, you know, right now, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any complaints as far as like, are they doing what needs to be done in terms of their job, which is investing in athletics. Now, you know, you can say you want Ray Tanner gone. Well, that's, that's president Kaslow's job. You know, you can say you want Will Muschamp looking left. That's Ray Tanner's job. You know, if that's, if that's the key and all that, then, you know, let those guys do their job. You know, that it's kind of the opposite of meddling in the good old boy system as far as it impacts athletics. So I, I don't think this impacts athletics at all unless we see a situation where, you know, the voices like Chuck Allen that care deeply about it on the board end up being dissipated and you have people that start saying, hey, we're not going to spend this or we're not going to spend that or we're not going to do this or that. Well, then that's going to be a problem. Because you you have to spend money if you're in the Southeastern Conference, bar none. There's no question. So, so that would be, to me, what the big problem would end up being if, indeed, you know, you, you have a BOT impacts athletics issue. Um, so in summary, because I said a lot here, in summary, I, I think that it's unfortunate Chuck Allen's being forced out. I, I think that the the – the reason that they're giving is bogus. You know, this happened in 2013. So seven years later, you're wow, oh, why? Um, I don't think politics should ever play a factor when it comes to selecting a school president or anything else that has to do with the University of South Carolina. However, I do think Caslin's doing a good job. And I think all in all, this is an unfortunate situation to even be talking about right now uh, when there's so many other important challenges you know, out there. And I think the timing of it sucks. I think they probably should have just let uh, 
you know, let Chuck go on and serve out his term or, you know, do whatever you want to get rid of him. There's, there's, there's a different time uh, to do that. So anyway, that's my take on that. It was unfortunate to read that this morning. I did not plan to talk about that, but I do think it's, uh, it's worthy to talk about. We got a lot of podcasts. I mean, sorry, we got a lot of mailbag questions. So about to roll through these and I'll do them as quickly as possible. Just wanted to remind that uh, we are on, um, uh, I'm on, locked on the Gamecocks with Keith today. Uh, if you want to talk about, uh, uh, I mean, if you want to listen and become a, um, I guess, a, a patron of his, you can listen to it uh, on Patreon. Uh, and I'll be there, and I'll also be on with, um, uh, later this week, the, the normal JB and Goldwater. We'll have a JC and Morgan, all that good stuff. Thank you for the five-star ratings, by the way. Keep going. All right. So the first uh, first way to get a mailbag question read is to tweet us on Twitter. And um, Justin says, thanks for the podcast, JC. I've been listening since Locked on the Gamecocks. Was super excited for you to do another podcast when you left. Thank you. My question is, why do we never hear the staff mentioned by Joe Anderson mentioned by the staff? It's, I don't know. He's They kind of haven't talked a lot about him and um you know i know some people that have said he's doing well um i do understand when you have a four-star guy like that that comes in highly rated you kind of we all we all want to get him on the field as quickly as possible and i did think in the spring when he first enrolled he flashed a little bit but i, I don't know he's kind of a tweener um i hope he plays because i i know his family i know him uh, I, I pull for the kid. He's a good kid. Um, let's just see kind of how it goes. But I do think it's curious. He's mentioned from time to time. Uh, but And I think with, with, with Travaris Robinson, they start talking about defensive ends, and Travaris went out of his way to um, to say, uh, you know, to, to, went out of his way to say, you know, we think Taka Hemingway is going to be good. And – People like to talk about freshmen, and so that's why I answered the question. I don't think it necessarily meant Hemingway was in front of him, uh, but regardless, uh, Anderson is a uh, Hemingway's been out a little bit. So Anderson's probably the number two defensive end right now, I would guess. Uh, but anyway, Justin, thanks for your your info or your your question there. I I think I did it the best I could to answer that one. <laughs> I uh, always love the podcast today and appreciate your answer. The point about Bobo versus Bama in the SEC championship game was a great one. The guy can call ball plays and consistently has productive offenses. Guess us football people can fixate on the few bad plays instead of a few body of work. I think I read that on the last episode, by the way. That was Randy Watson. Randy Watson. So, um, anyway, appreciate those. Tweet at the Big Spur Pod. That's at the Big Spur Pod. The other way is email. Inside the Gamecocks at gmail.com. And there's a lot of questions in the inbox today. On Monday, it's game week. JC, I'll keep my question short today. What are your expectations for this season's linebackers, particularly Ernest Jones? As always, keep up the good work. I am hopeful that Ernest Jones missing an extended amount of time in camp does not make him like a step slow because I thought instinctively he ended up really playing well. Um, really playing well. Uh, and uh, they liked him coming out of high school a lot. They felt like he was a future starter, uh, and, and he is kind of the glue of that defense. Uh, I think, obviously, it's fair because Sherrod Green's probably your starter at will. 
I think it's fair to say, well, he's going back to Will where he really struggled in 2018. So hopefully, hopefully, you know, he continues to play well like he did last year. But otherwise, Muhammad Kaba's back there. Damani Staley could always slide back there um, and all that. So I am uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that that happens. And then on the other side, when they play a four, you know, four, it's four, three, they call it regular. Uh, when they have a Sam linebacker, Brad Johnson has been in there. And, and, and Brad Johnson is uh, a guy that's probably, if they had to circle a guy that's been the biggest emerger of camp, it's probably Brad Johnson. So, Cautiously optimistic would be my question about the linebackers. So that would be my uh, my take on that. Anyway, thanks for your email. Spencer, Spence, and uh, for those of you that don't know, Spence always emailed me when I was on a show in Columbia back, I guess it was 07-ish, 08-ish, 09-ish, called The Box with Corey Miller. Uh, and Spence was always a good uh, emailer. So he's found me here on this podcast, and I certainly – Appreciate hearing from you, Spence. Uh, it's been a long time, my friend. Hope all is well. Sounds like it is. The question, the angst and consternation that many fans are having with the Colin Hill decision stems from either the presumed started uh, Ryan Holinsky was passed or didn't run the O quick enough, or two, the mediocre performances by Hill in the past. So the question is, what gives you confidence Hill can improve on his past performances, which I'm assuming you think to be mediocre? I don't think all of Colin Hill's performances were mediocre. I, I think that he had a year where he kind of came back in the middle of the season through seven touchdowns, seven picks was kind of off a little bit, but you got to kind of look at his career at Colorado state, like a sandwich. And you got the, the first piece of bread uh, that was his freshman year. And then you got the meat in the middle. And then you got the last, you know, couple of games he started last year where he was on fire. Um, so I think when you look at the trajectory and you look at what he did just last season, that, um, you know, he was doing some really good things uh, out there for Arkansas, for Colorado State. Just got hurt against Arkansas. Um, I like his arm talent. I think the guy's tougher than – tougher and tough as nails, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that's why he can improve on his past performances. I, I, I wasn't one of the ones going around flying the Helensky banner over the summer. I, I thought that – you know, when you look at Colin Hill's knee injuries and stuff like that, or over the winter, rather, I I, I thought, well, it's going to be hard for him to make it back and be physically ready to go play. Well, once he was physically ready to go play, you know, folks were telling me that, you know, he was going to be the guy. And and, and it, it it surprised me kind of on one hand, but, but you know, didn't really surprise me on the other because I, you know, looking at last year, I just, I've never thought Holinsky was, you know, super duper. Um, and I was hopeful that Helensky would, you know, sometimes the light just comes on that second year. We all know that. Um, but it obviously didn't happen quick enough. So, so that would be my thing, but that's a, that's a really good uh, email and question from you, Spence. And I really appreciate it. And don't be a stranger. Continue to email the inside the game cast podcast. Richard says, longtime listener, even going back to the other podcast prior to this, love the work. You're the best in the biz. You're five stars, even in the composite. Thank you so much. Richard, I appreciate that. And I don't make these up, by the way. <laughs> uh, these little niceties. Um, they're real, every one of them, and I really appreciate that. Would you consider this season a success regardless of wins and losses? If Carolina at the end of the year has a top six total defense in the SEC and an offensive identity with a coherent flow to the play calling and, of course, staying healthy, Richard A. I, um, 
No, I don't. I, I, I think South Carolina needs to win, you know, its share of games this year. Because uh, I, I think when you look at everything else, nothing else really matters but wins and losses. Um, and I thought that was what was so good about the 2017 team because, you know, it wasn't always pretty but, and they weren't always playing the best opponents, but they, they worked hard and they won nine games. Um, and that's kind of what Will Muschamp promised was a, was a blue-collar, overachieving outfit. And, you know, you can have all the top six defenses you want. And your offense can look flowing, flowingly good. And if you lose every game 24-23, that's still 0-10. Um, so, I, 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 now, are those things benchmarks and things that I'm looking for? Yes. Do I believe if those things happen, South Carolina's still going to be 2-8? and eight? No. <laughs> I think they'll be pretty good, you know, because I, I do think they'll – have the ability to go win. But uh, yeah, so that would be, that would be my thing is that, you know, yes, those things are important, but I I don't know that I consider the season of success based on, you know, those stats. I'm I'm looking for wins and losses just like everybody else. Keith says like Dr. Bob, I'm also a fan of your JC Morgan podcast. It was either on that show or maybe your old Gamecocks podcast. Well, I want you to mention you had a politics podcast. I wasn't interested in politics at the time, but that's changed with everything going on. Do you still do it? I think I'm probably on the same page with you based on how I've heard you talk about the Corona bros on the JC and Morgan podcast. Well, I'm, I'm surprisingly kind of in the middle politically. Uh, people like to guess. I, I get upset. You know, people get upset and say he's too liberal. And, you know, oh, he's, you know, MAGA or whatever. And I think, I think I just try to use common sense when I talk about that. We did have a politics or sports podcast uh, my partner and I both, though, um, co-host, we, we were, you know, it's an election year, so he works in politics. He's really busy. Um, the Gamecocks obviously had a season that kind of went up and down last year and then all this offseason with, with COVID and stuff. And so we just shelved it. It's not gone away forever, but we shelved it for now. Um, but it's called the POS Show. So that's, that's kind of what that is. And I'm actually glad now because, you know what, you get on there and you get heated about topics about politics – and people can easily, you know, this has happened to me before. People will take a slice of what you say and and, and distribute it to people. And um, it sounds a lot different than really the grand context of things. So um, I'm actually kind of glad because, you know, that, that, that podcast was not like putting food on the table. You know, what puts food on the table was the Gamecocks, the Big Spur, you know, all that good stuff. And I, you know, I would hate to have something that I said negatively impact that in any way, or, you know, some, some jerk out there uh, on the internet takes something and splices it up and makes you seem, you know, like you weren't. And, and it's just that kind of time right now in, in our country with social media and everything else. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost glad. I love doing it. I love doing it more than anything. You know, I, I it was right up there with this podcast, JC Morgan and, the one I have with Keith, I love the podcast part of it, but I, I'm just kind of glad because you just never know what people are going to interpret about you. Um, people love to connect the dots these days. So uh, anyway, uh, and, I, and I unfortunately do not have a political podcast I can recommend to you <laughs> because uh, I have mine and they're on, you know, I listen to NPR, which is very liberal. And I listen to the Savage Nation, which is very, very conservative. Um, and I, I like to listen to everybody. Rachel, I, I watch Rachel Maddow and I watch Sean Hannity. Um, uh, it's just kind of a weird thing about me, but, um, you know, that's, uh, I, I can't really, 
you know, give you a recommendation, you know, because people would say, ah, there, there he is. We called him. <laughs> uh, and that wouldn't be good. All right, Kevin. Whoa, Kevin. He says, JC, this is a big email. Leading into the home opener versus Tennessee next Saturday night, do you have any intel on the uniform combination the home team will wear uh, in their upset of the nationally ranked volunteers? <laughs> Last year, Carolina wore all white versus the heels and white pants, white journeys, to garnet hats at Tennessee. Could it be all garnet in the 2020 opener? We didn't see that combination in 2019 or a white trouser, garnet jersey, garnet helmet. That combination also wasn't utilized in 2019. JC, great show. You're the best. Believe it in an upset Saturday. By the way, nice mention on late kick. Yeah, thanks out to Josh Pate saying that. Um, it was awesome. And he he kind of goes, oh, he dropped this. Kevin uh, Kevin dropped this in too. Leggett, second best receiver this season or the best. I, I tell you, I think it's important that he does well. You know, as far as the uniforms go, my, my feeling is they're probably going to go white pants, black Gamecocks, or maybe Garnet Gamecocks jerseys. Garnet helmets? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'll say this, and I'm, I'm a little different than most of you guys. I don't really like the whole switch uniforms every game, try to be Oregon thing. I understand why they do it, and I like it from that standpoint. But the game just don't really have, like, it, it's just basically mixing up a bunch of colors. I mean, if they had, like, you remember Sean Elliott busted out the, the Gamecock wing helmet that time, looked like Oregon a little bit. You know, they did some more things like that. You know, those um, Wounded Warrior Project uniforms they did every couple of years, you know, except for the one year against Auburn where they couldn't see the numbers. Uh, stuff like that, I like, you know, did do some sort of gray look on the road, I think is good. But, I man, I, I don't know. It just seems like the game costs to sort of, you know, rotate. Uh, and, but I get it. You know, the kids, the, it, that's really up to the players. It doesn't matter what I think or what the fans think about the uniforms. Fans love those uniform combos and stuff like that. Um, but but I, they've been showing off that new Garnet jersey. Uh, and so I can see them using that with, you know, maybe a black helmet, maybe a, maybe a, a, a the white helmet like Spurrier era. I, I, I don't know. But, but yeah, I am. Um, if I had to guess, I would say the Garnet jersey. But that information, I mean, they're going to do a video and all that. And, uh, break that out. But, I mean, you know, and, hey, would I mind the all-Garnet look? No, I like that look. That's like uh, they used that a lot in 84. So, we'll see what happens. But, yeah, Bates West, Kevin. Bates West. Woo. Shoe buddy. <laughs> and, finally, we have – well, we have two more. All right, so, Mitchell comes back in says, thanks for the podcast. I'm a Chico State grad. Sierra Nevada from California, moved here 17 years ago, went to a tailgate and thought it was bizarre. People of all ages were standing on tailgates yelling Joe Cox, but I've been a fan ever since. If I'm not mistaken, my first game was the big fight during Holtz's last year. Yeah, up at Clemson, I was there. Uh, anyway, I've become a big fan in your pod and the Big Spur, both of which have significantly enhanced my Gamecock family. I even figured out how to get on Apple Pod just to rate you five stars. I really needed – the pod in March and April when life is upside down. Keep it up. So here's my question. Let's think in terms of haves and haves nots. Haves are Bama, Clemson, Georgia, Florida, LSU, SEC teams that have a legit shot at the playoff. Have nots, as of now, are the rest of the SEC to have less history. Given COVID and the NCAA giving everyone a free redshirt year, how will this affect the haves and have nots? Will more players leave for the NFL after this year? Will more players from the haves go to the NFL? More from the have nots return to play an additional year? 
thus being able to close the gap on some of the house. I, I think I think you're on to something. I you know I I I, I think obviously you got to put LSU in the halves. I think they're going to not be that good this year. Um, Bama, Clemson, Georgia, of course. I don't know about Florida yet, but yeah, they have a shot. Um, you know, for South Carolina, you know, when you got so many guys that are, you know, and I'm not saying so many. I mean, you got uh, numbers of guys that are, you know, developmental guys that need the practice and work. Guys that have fought through injury during their career that, you know, need to get healthy. You know, maybe it helps them when if those guys all hit and become healthy, and then the other schools. Now, the guys are going to go to the NFL regardless. I mean, those that are ready and eligible are going to go. So, you know, Alabama, um, you know, I think some guys at Clemson, I mean, Trevor Lawrence has already said he's not coming back. Georgia has a bunch every year. You know, they're going to go ahead and go. Um, you know, your, your other schools in the league, like, like Carolina, you know, maybe not. Maybe they're not ready. So, I think you're on to something um, about it, maybe being able to close somewhat of a talent gap. I don't know that – you can sit there and say that the talent gap is ever going to, to, to close, but the talent gap doesn't have much to do with, with like winning and losing unless it's like very, very large. Okay. You know, thank Alabama, you know, South Carolina played a pretty good game against them last year. It's 47, 16 in the third quarter because their receivers just kept running by Carolina's DBs and there's nothing they can do about it. That's, that's a, that's an insurmountable talent gap. Um, if you think about last year, it was LSU more talented than Alabama and Georgia, the Alabama team they beat and the Georgia team they beat? No. No. Their guys, though, were playing at such a higher level that they ended up being the most dominant team in college football. But you want to line it up player for player, are they that much better than Georgia, Clemson, Alabama? Probably not, just talent-wise. Um so and when the talent's close, that means you got a shot. That's what Spurrier used to say. He's like, you don't have to recruit at the same level these schools are. You just got to get close. And that way, you know, on Saturdays, you know, you line up with with forty four or so, and they line up forty four or so, and whoever the best team is wins. So, but I, I think you're onto something in terms of what to watch for here as we move forward, because that that's that's something that ends up being like calculus to me when I'm trying to figure out everything. Um, uh, you know, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, how they're going to squeeze these guys in, what are they going to do? You know, it's going to be crazy. Hey, all right, so Phil emails in JC. I'm enjoying the show. Just wanted to talk about the offense for a minute. I saw recently Colin Hill's getting some bad buzz about being named the starter. I don't get it. Yeah. I'll scroll through some of those Facebook groups. <laughs> you see the article posted Hill named starter and everybody's like two and eight, one and nine. I'm like, I don't know. I believe Hill has some real talent. And just like I was on board with Ryan last year, I'll get behind Hill this year. I still believe Ryan will be big for us down the road. But four and seven as a starter doesn't guarantee you a spot for the starting position the following year in any league. It's true. That being said, the play calls was a tro- play calling was atrocious and predictable. Putting Ryan in bad positions. I agree there, too. At times, it definitely was. The Missouri game sticks out like a sore thumb there, which was so sad because I thought they called a really good game against Bama, but you can't just go call the same game against Missouri that you did against Bama because Missouri has the Bama tape. Anyway, I digress. Let's get behind Colin and go Cavs. Big Dorman high. There you go. You And then another thing uh, – Phil has another question here. 
JC, do you think we'll see more adjustments in play calling at the line of scrimmage on offense before the ball is snapped? Yes, I do. Um, and he goes on to say, I miss the days of Connor going to the line, seeing the defense and Spurrier calling the audible. Yeah, you're going to see more things like that. Seems like Muschamp's recent offenses have been up-tempo, random play, throw into a spot. Uh, yeah, that's the RPO game or the the pseudo-RPO game or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, Jake would usually go to the line with two plays, a run play and a, flash, run play and a pass play. And then, they, you know, you choose based on the defense. And when it worked, it worked. But when it didn't, and teams could stop it, it was ugly. I'm sure there was some method to the madness, but no disrespect to the former OCs. Uh, it just seems more like madness than method. Uh, that could be a reason why Hill edged out Ryan for QB1. I think Bobo's will be a lot more complex than people think. I believe you have to see the whole field, what the defense is trying to do. I'm excited to see what this offense can do with a true OC. As always, thank you for what you do and bringing us Gamecock fans together in very divided and trying times. That's what sports is all about. Amen to that, brother. And, yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, that's one of the reasons you hire uh, Mike Bobo is to come run offense because he is a – Accomplished play caller, and it, and it is a little more tricky than maybe what they were trying to run. So, anyway, well, this is all the time we have. I've gone up against it, did not expect to go this soon. I got to go record with Keith, so check that out later today if you're a Patreon over there. Um, otherwise, I'll be back with you all week. It's game week in South Carolina. This has been the Inside the Game Cost Podcast. JC Sherbert signing off. I'll let you soon.